So today I want to title this message, Love in Reconciliation. So we see Jesus has talked about love God with the best of your energy, love your neighbor in the same way that you take care of yourself, love your enemies. Don't just love the people that love you back. Now, this can be really difficult to understand, but some of the people who were hearing this were familiar with this from the life of David. Um, They had seen something different out of David. Uh, God said about David that David was a man after his own heart. Now, David had a wide variety of experiences, and I want to talk about one of those experiences that is so important. Last week I mentioned that our response to what's going on today, which is choosing a response is unique from an initial emotional reaction. And I've noticed a huge difference in my social media timeline between the reactions from people who watched the nine-minute video of the death of George Floyd and people who did not watch the video. An emotional reaction is is a part of the human experience and then what comes after that hopefully once we have processed is our response is long-term action and for us at city harbor church what we're trying to do is follow jesus receiving new life from jesus and following jesus that's our posture that's our response and we can learn if david was a man who was after god's own heart who jesus himself wanted to be associated with we can learn from his life so i want to take you to a story that is strange david had um, sexual sin in his life he had he had multiple wives and he had a son named absalom who killed his half-brother amnon who had raped his sister Tamar. It's a horrible story. You see 2 Samuel chapter 13. And today, if you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, I'm not going to quote all the scriptures. You're going to find them in the notes, on the post, or on your screen if you're watching this video. So David's son Absalom has killed Absalom's half-brother Amnon for raping his sister. It's a horrible situation. And David is grieved. David is um as I can't even imagine what, as a parent, that would be like to see murder within your own family, within your own house. But after you're already suffering the trauma of this rape happening. And then that's when we see this story. And if you've been following along with me on the daily posts uh, at benwalma.com or reading through the Bible in a year, we've been looking at the life of David. I want to turn to Second Samuel chapter 14. I know this might seem strange, but hang in there with me. This has a really important and helpful redemptive message. Second Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. Joab, who was uh, David's general, Joab realized how much the king longed to see Absalom. This is after uh, the murder had taken place. So he sent for a woman from Tekoa, who had a reputation for great wisdom. He said to her, Pretend you are in mourning. Wear mourning clothes and don't put on lotions. Act like a woman who has been mourning for the uh, the dead for a long time. Then go to the king and tell him the story I'm about to tell you. Then Joab told her what to say. When the woman from Tekoa approached the king, she bowed with her face to the ground in deep respect and cried out, O king, help me. What's the trouble? The king asked. Alas, I am a widow, she replied. My husband is dead. 
My two sons had a fight out in the field, and since no one was there to stop it, one of them was killed. Now the rest of the family is demanding, Let us have your son. We will execute him for murdering his brother. He doesn't deserve to inherit his family's property. They want to extinguish the only coal I have left, and my husband's name and family will disappear from the face of the earth. She's appealing for the life of the son. Leave it to me, the king told her. Go home, and I'll see to it that no one touches him. Oh, thank you, my lord, the king, the woman from Tekoa replied. If you are criticized for helping me, let the blame fall on me and on my father's house, and let the king and his throne be innocent. If anyone objects, the king said, bring him to me, and I can assure you he will never complain again. Then she said, Please swear to me by the Lord your God that you won't let anyone take vengeance against my son. I want no more bloodshed. As surely as the Lord lives, he replied, Not a hair on your son's head will be disturbed. Please allow me to ask one more thing of my lord the king, she said. Go ahead and speak, he responded. She replied, Why don't you do as much for the people of God as you have promised to do for me? You have convicted yourself in making this decision because you have refused to bring home your own banished son. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. She is speaking to the character of who God is, what God is like, the value system of God, and the value system of God that they had already learned through the way God had revealed himself to Adam and Eve, Abraham and Moses, and on and on down the list that goes that God is a God working always for redemption, working always not just to wipe away someone's life, but to bring them back, even when their offenses are horrible. And she knew that David had an understanding of God's value system, that it was not just a head thing for him, but it was a heart thing. He had a heart for God's value system. And David did see the wisdom in recognizing God's value system on reconciliation. Now, this is in contrast to the foolishness of revenge that David was seeing in the wars that he was fighting. Saul had been trying to, to kill him. And there was death back and forth. And Abner, who was Saul's general, said to Joab, who was David's general, must we always be killing each other? Don't you realize that bitterness is the only result? And I have thought about that, thought about these words so many times when praying over the murder that we see in Baltimore, which many, many times is really about revenge. But it is an endless cycle. Now listen, even though David recognized God's value system, David was not perfect. He, he, his decisions were the cause of some of the bloodshed. He'd had an immoral affair with Bathsheba, who was married to Uriah. David had committed murder to cover up this affair. David had to be confronted by Nathan to confess his sin. Now, David had also learned about God, though, even though he wasn't perfect and he made his mistakes. And we see that because David showed the heart of God by repeatedly mourning the death of someone who tried to kill him. Even, even in, and this 
so often is not the case with us in the human race, but David did. Even when, when we see a death, a death of somebody that we know, regardless of the state of their character, there should be a mourning, there should be a grieving of that death. And, and David showed that, even for, for when people who were trying to kill him uh, died. And David also did not go after people that were cursing him. And so this understanding of God's nature was something that he understood. And yet, even when David made a call for his son Absalom to be reconciled, to return, he refused to see him. Instead, he kept him at arm's length. This is what it says, Second Samuel chapter 14 and verse 14. The king gave this order. Absalom may go to his own house, but he must never come into my presence. So Absalom did not see the king. This is a critical, important lesson when we are trying to learn about God's value system. And, and today we talked last week about personal responsibility and group responsibility. And if we don't have in our own personal lives an understanding of God's value system on relational reconciliation, then it won't. It will be weak. It will fall short when it goes to anything larger, anything group oriented, anything societal, anything that is bigger than that. So we got to understand this personally. It's very, very important. So David called his son, but then he kept his his son Absalom at arm's length. And that I have over the last years seen so many examples of our public media lifting up and elevating this idea of tolerance. And here's what I want to say. That is a cheap substitute to God's love and grace that brings someone who where there has been offense back into being close, which I know is not possible if we try to do it out of our own strength. So what we see, unfortunately, is that as a result of this, Absalom rebelled against David, his father. He was crowned king and David runs away. And then as a result of that, Absalom is killed by Joab. But again, David mourns the death of his son that had revolted against him, grieving, saying, I wish it had been me that this had happened to. Now, David, what we also see is that he learned from this and he no longer kept people at arm's length. In fact, he brought people close to himself that had formerly been associated with his enemies. But this is a critical understanding. And what I'm calling us to is that we would receive new life from Jesus, forgiveness for our own mistakes, that we could be made clean, washed of our guilt, removed of that, reconciled in our relationship with God. And then that that reconciliation would inform the way we look at all of our interpersonal relationships. This is a part of God's value system. And Peter was there to hear Jesus say, love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor in the same way you take care of yourself. This is what a neighbor looks like. Peter was there to hear Jesus say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And here's what Peter, God revealed to Peter about the nature of God. We see 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. He said, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. God doesn't want anyone 
to suffer. He wants us to come to him to receive forgiveness and salvation that the suffering would come to an end. Now the reality is, is not until Jesus returns will a human uh, disposition to make mistakes, to sin against each other, that's not going to completely come to an end until Jesus returns. But if we make changes in our lives and spread that to others, we it can be like a reverse virus. What we see is a, a, a almost spreading just like, I heard it said this week, injustice spreads like COVID-19. Well, I think that love can be more contagious than COVID-19. And that happens when reconciliation is real. So here's what I think we need to look at. One, God wants us to be reconciled to him through our faith in Jesus. And two, God wants us to be reconciled to each other. But I want to explain a little bit what that means. Now, you've heard me refer to a Truth and Reconciliation Commission and what people have learned in the past after horrific ways that humans have treated each other. One of the things that has been learned is that healing doesn't happen. It isn't complete until the apology includes an understanding of what was wrong. And so it's really important in our interpersonal relationships that if somebody is communicating with us that we wronged them, that we take the time to understand what that is, that we not just ignore it. You know, unfortunately, I have found in my life that when some people have told me that I was being a jerk, I didn't realize that I was being a jerk. And it never helped if I just jumped to conclusions and didn't listen to them. When we listen to others, when we come to understand what the mistake was and the harm that it caused and what we could have done differently to prevent it, what we can do now to make it right, only then do we have a chance to make a Jesus-honoring good apology. And here's what a good apology looks like. This, fill in the blank, this is what I did that was wrong. I gossiped about you, I lied about you, I smacked you in the face, whatever it is. This, fill in the blanks, is what I did that was wrong. And this is the harm that it caused. I recognize that it hurt you in this way. I recognize that it affected our relationship in this way. This is the harm that it caused. I'm sorry. I make a commitment to never do it again. Now, you might need to be praying, God, you got to help me fulfill that commitment. You may need help to fulfill that commitment. And that help can come from God spiritually and it can also come from help from others. But you got to end that apology. This is what I did that was wrong. This is the harm that it caused. I'm sorry. I make a commitment to never do it again. Please forgive me. How can I make this right? That's what a good apology looks like. And in the midst of everything that we are talking about this month, and there are different twisted narratives that are out in the public press about what's going on. And some of it may be confusing to different people. And listen, not everybody has had the same life experience. So whether it be the word racism or police brutality or whatever's going on, not everyone is going to have had the same human experience or read the same books or had the same understanding on things. Here's what I do know. 
God has a value system that can help us make today better, make our tomorrow better. We're not just hoping and wishing for going back to normal, but instead we can be working toward a better tomorrow. It's only possible when we receive the love of Jesus. That's the only way that it is possible. And I do believe that if we value relational reconciliation, our world will be better. We won't just have said sorry to somebody and then keep them at arm's length. Keeping people at arm's length has never been the answer. It's not the kingdom of God way to go. Healing relationships, restoring relationships, back to strength and functioning them. I've had situations in my own life where there was a deep forgiveness that needed to happen between me and another person for a deep offense. And what I did going forward is we made sure that we had like a weekly point of contact, a weekly phone call, weekly check-in for a while. It helped us rebuild the relationship. There are ways for us to do that. Now, today, I'm keeping my message purposely short because I want also to bring to you a message from Pastor Tyrone Jones of Church for the City in Yuma, Arizona. They're a part of our network of churches that we are from, Ministers Fellowship International. And uh, he's one of just many videos I saw this past couple of weeks from pastors within our own network that I thought presented excellent perspective on what's going on. Pastor Tyrone's going to share some of his own human life experiences and perspective. I think it's really beneficial to us. These issues that we're talking about publicly right now are highly charged emotional issues. What you're going to see is that Pastor Tyrone is actually going to read his thoughts um, to you, and I just ask that you would listen, listen deeply. He's going to wrap up with some excellent spiritual perspective, some of which will probably sound a little bit familiar, and then I'm going to come back and close us in prayer. So I'm going to turn it now uh, to Pastor Tyrone. Good afternoon. I'm Pastor Tyrone P. Jones, the lead pastor of Church for the City uh, in Yuma, Arizona. CTC began with a group of six people that were meeting to plan to, to launch this current church. Uh, that first Sunday we gathered together was on July 4th, 1993, with 28 people. The church has grown to become a multicultural and a multi-generational church that is very influential in our community and our city, also has a great imprint in our country and has an impact around the world. Uh, as I now speak, we continue to grow with the heart and the desire to show people the love of God uh, and the way of God with a group of people that are committed to serving our city no matter what ethnic, culture, or background that they come from. Virginia, my lovely wife, is a Mexican. Our children are in mixed marriages, giving us multicultural grandchildren. Each of our children and grandchildren cherish the relationships beyond those of their own skin shape. It is more common to, than not to see us around town and in our community, mixed in at events with people of other cultures, other races, laughing together with people that are not like us. By no means is it contrived. It is our life. It's intentional and it's joyful. This is a city I was born in and raised in outside of a few years. Yuma is a city that I love, that has been good to my family, has been a fertile ground to raise a thriving, multicultural church. In this community, we enjoy many friends that includes, but is not limited to, prominent businessmen in our city, influential city leaders, including multiple judges, chief of police, the mayor, 
the sheriff of our county. They're all friends. We stand side by side with people of local churches, pastors of our local churches, administrators, school principals, heads of agencies in our community that are serving our city. We do this because that's who we are and that's what our heart is. It's not anything that we have to work up. It's natural for us. Humans family oriented. It's a peaceful community that models cultural inclusiveness. Our police force and sheriff departments are one of the finest in the nation in regard to few reports or complaints recorded against them when they are involved and have to interact with people in our community. When they're protesting Yuma, they're usually peaceful, spotted with people of various shades, skins, status, and standing in our community. In our cultural fields, and our agricultural fields, which are plenty, the field owners and the harvesters care for the laborers as if they were family. I've witnessed this with my own eyes because my sons have worked in those fields. Our military institutions are led by men and women who engage with great interest of people of other cultures and race. That I've also witnessed, not only in my own congregation, but in the home of multiple military officers that treat my family like their own. We are truly a city that understands that there are differences and distinctions among us. And though we're not perfect as a city, we demonstrate and celebrate diversity. I began with that to say that what I'm going to share now is, a st is not a statement or an indictment against our city and the citizens that I happily dwell with at all. We're not immune to what we see on TV screens or read about from various news medias. But as of now, we have lived together in a growing city without having given any national attention due to adverse actions of police officers or people who have acted out of frustrations and hopelessness, which is understood, and people that are crying out for change and policies. Therefore, the decision to make this video was based on several Zoom calls with churches in the United States and abroad, interviews to be included in pastors and leaders uh, and, and their statements to their churches, conversations with local pastors, my staff, my family, and CTC attendees. The events that have rocked our nation ought to cause you to stop, think, and assess personally and make a determination of how you are to respond. It may take time, as it often does for me, to do my own research, to listen to healthy, honest conversations, and to take up reading God's word regarding justice, mercy, and the action of the gospel before you know how to say and what to say particularly. But we all must be ready for an answer. In this, I want to address the following. Institutional racism, police brutality, the role of the church, the gospel, and your personal action. Institutional racism. Racial oppression is real. America's not immune to this. To deny it would be worse than the actual racial prejudice and injustice that has affected millions. The country that I love was started with principles and beliefs that was wrong from the foundation. We began with the Constitution in, 18, in 1787 that said African Americans as individuals was only considered three-fifths of a person and three-fifths of a citizen of the United States. The three-fifths clause remained in force until post-Civil War 13th Amendment freed all enslaved people in the United States. The 14th Amendment gave them full citizenship and the 15th Amendment granted black men the right to vote. So hear this, it's not a broken system. It's a system that started broken. I love much of what I read about the generals of the Civil War, yet I'm appalled by the actions of some that look to sovereign 
and a provident God and yet didn't see the heart toward those that they enslaved and allowed to be abused. Families were pulled apart. People were bought and sold like they were property. July 4th doesn't mean the same for me. We were not free. White people only were free. Our liberation came later. So I do celebrate the 4th of July because I am a free man in a country that I love. And I don't protest against the flag and I will not because it serves as a symbol for what many fought for so I can be free. And though there is still racism and injustices, I am free because of those who are fighting for me and continue to fight for my freedom. It's hard for many people today to remember the conditions which many black Americans live throughout the, throughout the South. You may want to watch Green Book to get a glimpse. The origin of Jim Crow laws has often been attributed to Jump Jim Crow, a song and dance caricature of blacks performed by a white actor named Thomas D. Rice in blackface, which first surfaced in 1832. As a result of Rice's fame, Jim Crow had become a pejorative word to express being a Negro by 1838, and then those laws ended up becoming laws that we now know as Jim Crow laws. They were enacted in 1866 and remained in force until 1965. They mandated racial segregation in all public facilities with a supposed separate but equal status for black Americans. In reality, this led to treatment and accommodations that were usually inferior to those provided for white Americans systemizing a number of economic, educational, and social disadvantages, along with segregation, lynchings, and the burning of African-American churches and their homes was a commonplace. What we're seeing now is a generational mindset accepted by many and carried out destructively by those who have the power to do so. We can prove that redlining did not allow many black Americans to get home loans jobs were not offered based on ability or qualification, but shade of skin and biases. What is a crime in one community will, in, will, will result in jail, such as drug use. But in other communities, it's a sickness, and you're allowed to go to a rehab or a clinical treatment. Hearing people call me names, being told who I could not marry, being shaded in the store, watching my children cry due to racial treatment. being subverted on the house purchase, having jobs retracted, being informed of where I was not allowed to enter, being stopped, pulled over, and questioned by officers for no apparent reason is what I've personally experienced. If you don't believe it happens, it's because you're not a victim of it. Can you believe those who've been victims, or do you want to just dismiss it as a one-off and promote it as just, just some sort of justification? progress we need to make in this area is not served by congregation, by solved by conversation alone. But it sure does not begin with not accepting the facts. Let me talk about police brutality for just a moment. Police officers, and when I say most, I mean by far, are good men and women who leave their family every day with the mission to protect you and me. They do it sacrificially. They know what they signed up for. Their families make the sacrifice, and some with fear and trembling, not knowing if they will see their loved ones after a shift, if they will make it home alive. We honor them. We respect them. They're heroes in our communities and role models to many. 
I want to say to each one of you, thank you. And understand that I'm not speaking against you or your department. There are few who make things bad for most. To read the recent stories of such as Breonna Taylor and to see the killing of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd is grieving in a way I have not experienced. There are many others and, and they all matter. And yet the last few have made, have made publicity and have caused many of us to say, are we still here? Have you heard the statement, if someone shows you who they are, believe them? Well, I want to suggest when you see who people are, believe it. This has not been proven to be a one-off. There are police out there who are banned and some, some who excessively brutalize others, including blacks. Let me tell you this. To watch an officer have his knee on the neck of another man for almost nine minutes while he's crying out for his life, while people stand there and watch it, is something I'll never understand. Why didn't another officer say something? I would have taken the risk myself of being arrested to push him off myself. This is a humanity issue, and everyone ought to feel it. God so loved the world. Black or white, Christian or not, he sent his son to die for you and me. Not that we watch other people die like that. I really want to believe that when someone dies or someone does a crime, whatever it may be, the officer will not be the one who's the captor, the judge, the jury, and the executioner. We believed you when you said justice for all. We believed you. But I've had to and will continue to have conversations with my children and grandchildren about what they need to do when an officer engages them. Just yesterday, Tiffany called me late afternoon to say that I'm in an accident. She lives in the Phoenix area. I asked her the basic questions. Was anyone hurt? Then I asked her if she called the police. She said she did. I said, are they there or are they coming? Because I want you to hold me on the phone because I don't know what's gonna happen. She did go on to tell me that the officer there was wonderful and treated her with great respect. I do not agree at all with the funding police departments. I think that's ridiculous. It would only give way to anarchy. The result of that would be bad for all people, including, and I say especially, ethnic groups. Yet I do believe it's right for police to be policed on how they're treating people. Whether it's criminals or not that they're dealing with, they should treat people with decency, with value and respect. The sanctity of life is an issue for all of us. And I mean that in all aspects, from the unborn child in the womb, to the many killed in war zones, such as Chicago every week, to the undocumented worker even in our country, to the child and the woman that has been trafficked into sex slavery, to the elderly that are being abused in nursing care facilities and the like. No political party has it right. I have a conservative position and, and social awareness, with social awareness. And, and at the same time, I don't agree with everything 
on neither political side. But what I do believe is that all of us need to embrace a passion and a protection, a passion for the protection of life, no matter who they are and no matter what they have done. God so loved the world, all the world, among them the oppressed, the weak, the defenseless, the poor, and those who have suffered injustice. Regarding the role of the church and those of us who name the name of Jesus, part of the problem has been our denial, the turning away and the silencing of the church. We were given the spirit of God and the presence of God to be salt and light. That means being difference makers, speaking into things as a voice of righteousness, calling for justice and practicing the gospel. A friend of mine who's white taught me two principles that are a mantra. We are to be gospel courageous and gospel corrective. Courageously preaching the gospel, for it alone is the power of God that transforms lives. And also corrective, meaning the injustices meted out on many need to be addressed from the position of the gospel that declares that we're all one in Christ Jesus and we're all reconciled in Christ because of the washing of his blood and the forgiveness of our sins. And we also are to wash one another in love, seeking forgiveness and aspiring toward reconciliation. This is what we as a church need to do. I don't need another feet washing service where a white man washes my feet to acknowledge his love. I don't need another pastor to call me to an all white congregation so he can say, see, I have a black friend also. I don't need another Promise Keepers movement where they sponsor black pastors to come so a stadium full of white men can tell you that I'm sorry for what was done. Jesus has already died for that. I don't need your apology. Eric Mason states it best in his book, The Woke Church. When, he's, when he ministers to us or speaks to us in his writing, for those of us that might be confused and those that might be complacent and those that might be angry, he challenges each of us to be aware, to learn the history of racism in America and in the church and how it's tainted our witness to the world. And in doing so, understand the issue of justice is not just a black issue. It's a kingdom issue. He encourages us to be redemptive, to grieve and lament what we have lost and to regain our prophetic voice, calling the church to remember our gospel imperative and to promote justice and mercy. He encourages us to be active, to move beyond polite, safe conversations about reconciliation and to begin to set things right for our soon coming king. I do not say any of this for you to think that I do not believe blacks have their own set of problems. We got a whole lot to deal with. Fathers abandoning their children, multiple petty crimes, murdering, in our, murdering our own in our own urban neighborhoods, rage and anger that causes me at times to be frightened, and the tragedy of the multitude of abortions among our community. But personally, I'm not asking for any sympathy or any special treatment or any reparations or special privilege as some groups are. For that reason, I think it's unwise to use any hashtag that identifies with any movement or group. Of course, Black Lives Matter. That should go unsaid, but that's not my agenda. This is not what I wanna walk away from any conversation. It's just believing that you think that I matter. What I want everybody to hear me say is that all of us need a level playing field. We've always done fine when we're on a level playing field and all the rules are the same. You can watch it in any sport, no matter whether you're black, white, Hispanic, or Asian. Basketball court, football field, 
baseball field, everybody has the same rules. It's 11 playing field, and we all do fine. That's all I'm asking for. No matter what the color or shade of my skin is, is that we all have a level playing field. Give us the same rules in the bank. Give us the same rules in schools. Give us the same rules in the HR office. We'll do fine. I'm also aware that racism is not one-sided and is not free from prejudice among Mona uh, ethnicity. All of us have some biases, and I think we all need to be honest about that. And we will exercise such if we don't allow the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of the Lord to bring truth to our assessments. We all have to do better, and we all have to do our part. Finally, I want to close with this. I want to suggest that we're not to be silent. We would be as guilty as the two who walked on the road of Jericho that saw the beaten, brutalized man in Luke chapter 10. They saw his condition and said nothing and did nothing. It was a good Samaritan who was not one of their race who saw the wounded man and helped him. The two who walked away showed us what not to do. The one unlike him who saw the man wounded showed us what to do. We're to love one another as Christ has loved us. By this, all men will know that we are his disciples. The second thing is, I suggest that we challenge civil leaders. If their voices are divisive and mean-spirited, they should be challenged. If there's no action that proves change, they should be challenged, no matter who it is, from the president to the city council person. We do that in many ways, including peaceful protests. There's nothing wrong with that. And again, I emphasize peaceful. We see that the Apostle Paul did it in Acts chapter 16. Some are not practicing that. And that, that's wrong. It's sinful. It's disrespectful. Respective, respectful. And it adds greatly to the problem. Our country is grappling with many high stakes, emotionally charged issues. We should defend our positions vigorously and with conviction. But we can do it civilly. The last thing is this. Pray for the Lord to help us all and hear our land. Heal our land. Second Chronicles 714 is very common, but it's still yet true. My people who bear my name, humble themselves and pray. Seek my face and turn from their evil ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins and I will hear their land, heal their land. Let us do our part. Let us speak truth, live truth, encourage truth. Love with the love that we receive from God our Savior. I love this country. I love my city. I love the church that Jesus died for. I love you, and I love dwelling among you. Let us love one another. God bless you, and God bless America. Pastor Tyrone so much. It was my great pleasure a couple of years ago to meet you and to spend time with you and to listen to your teaching out of conference and I'm so thankful for you and for your life story. A church, City Harbor Church family, I hope that this has been <coughs> beneficial to you 
I know that we might be looking at this in different ways, but one thing that's really important, if you have not had the life experience that somebody else has had, you might not understand that that is the reality that they have experienced. And it's so important for us to be learning from each other. I'm so thankful Pastor Tyrone highlighted the importance of listening to each other and um, the Good Samaritan story, uh, the Second Chronicles uh, 7.14 of praying, confessing our wrong, and, and calling on God to bring healing to our land, and the call for us to love each other. Listen, you can make a huge difference in your neighborhood. We, are, we live in Baltimore City where two out of three people are African-American. In my neighborhood, 80% of people are African-American. And in Hamden, 80% of people are white. We have an opportunity to reach out to each other with a lifestyle of personal reconciliation with the love of God that will look supernatural to people if we're drawing strength from God. So allow me to pray for you today, please. God, I thank you so very much for your great love for us that you have shown through Jesus Christ. I thank you that you are a God of miracles. I thank you that as we have been stirring ourselves for the last couple of months to pray more than we have ever prayed before, that you would help us to be hearing your voice, hearing your guidance at every turn. Help us, God, I'm asking in the name of Jesus to not be confused or distracted. Help us to be focused on you. Heal our hearts today. Help us to receive your love. Let our hearts be broken for what breaks yours. Let us be refreshed as we refresh others. I thank you, God, that that's who you are, that that's what you're like. We receive your grace and peace today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for participating with this. As always, the video after the live stream will be available here on our page and on YouTube. Please feel free to share it with others. We're in a marathon uh, regarding these deep spiritual and societal issues. It's not a sprint. We're not in a rush. We. It's so important that we love on each other. We're all having a human experience. Let's give each other a break, a breather, um, a lighthearted encouragement. As, as well as sharing these deep experiences. Thank you so much for participating in this today. Grace and peace to you. Have a great day.